For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. From economics to the woke agenda, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. Exciting show for you today. As you know, Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum is meeting. We're going to do a discussion, uh, a little bit of a deep dive there. And also uh, the Rebel News is on the scene again on the cobblestone streets of Davos, Switzerland with Ezra Levant and company with overhead drones. Uh, and they're doing some fantastic stuff. I'll be getting you a, a lot of their interviews next week. And I think uh, maybe we'll even interview someone from there. Pardon the glasses. Okay, we are starting out today. First of all, the other thing I want to mention is we have a fantastic guest. We have guest. We have the former communications director for Trump's 2020 presidential campaign, Tim Murtaugh, who will be joining us. And we're going to talk all things Trump. And we're also going to talk about his book, uh, Swing Hard, In Case You Miss It, My Escape from Addiction and Shot at Redemption in the Cham- uh, Trump Campaign. Apparently, he was an alcoholic, woke up in jail in 2015, and turned his life around. And that'll be a fascinating, both personal story and political, about Trump and his reelection in the 2020 campaign. And we'll talk about the 2024 campaign. All right, I'm, I'm sort of backed up. I have some clips to show you. I actually have some other clips, too. I got couple of Fox hits I wanted to show you segments from. I was on Laura Ingram in primetime last night on Fox News talking about Davos and electric vehicles. Uh, some of the stuff we talked about on yesterday's show, the freezing cold and the larger picture. I didn't get to expand that. I did mention this yesterday about suddenly the media, corporate media, CBS News, uh, and all these other mainstream outlets are reporting over and over about how electric vehicle Teslas, and Tesla's always in the headline, are failing and people are being stranded and they're not able to charge it. People have to precondition their batteries and the range is dropping significantly in the cold weather and people are just generally unhappy. Articles about the poor customer service of Tesla. And I started thinking, what is going on? Why is suddenly the media turning against the favorite of the entire ruling class, electric vehicles. What could it be? They want to ban gas-powered cars. They want us to go nowhere and be happy. They want us to force us into buses and trains and subways and mass transit. But all of a sudden, in winter 2024, they're all complaining about Tesla EVs. What could it be? Have they finally wised up? Are they questioning the net zero agenda? And then it hit me. It hit me. This is all about Elon Musk. They're going after him for his SpaceX, his government contracts. They're going after him personally with allegations of harassment and legal legal woes. They're going after Tesla's now, bad customer service, bad making, not surviving the winter, poor design performance, bad charging stations. And it all comes down, I believe, the final straw for the, for the mainstream media was Alex Jones being reinstated on X, Twitter. Personal decision by Elon Musk. If the 2016 presidential election was an F you to the establishment by voting for Donald Trump, then Elon Musk reinstating Alex Jones on Twitter or X about a month ago, and I guess it was December, 2023, was the greatest F you to the ruling class establishment. Now, when Elon Musk did that, what did it mean? It meant very simply, that he declared war on all the people that helped him become the wealthiest man in the world. 
He declared war on the very government which he was relying on with subsidies, mandates, and outright bans on his competition of gas-powered cars. He declared war on all of those connections, contracts. He declared war on all of his SpaceX contracts. He's declaring war on all his medical and research and public health um, connections related to his Neuralink, the brain uh, brain stimulation uh, research and project he's got going. Every single tenant of Elon Musk's legacy and wealth is tied to approval and support of the ruling class elites and government contracts. I mean, this would be like Ross Perot during the height of his becoming a billionaire with his government contracts, declaring war on the establishment and going after everyone. What Elon Musk did, and Alex Jones was the final straw. Alex Jones was very important. When they took Alex Jones out, it was an easy target for the mainstream media. They painted him as a monster who was denying all this stuff. And everyone's like, oh, well, who cares? It's Alex Jones, right? That was a lot of the sentiment. I cared. I didn't want him to go anywhere. But then it turns out Alex Jones became, first of all, the, the expression is tra always trending. Alex Jones was right. But Alex Jones became sort of the poster boy of the censorship and the way to defeat at least symbolically, is to bring him back on Twitter. And that told the, the, uh, the, all the big tech, told all the government censors, all the misinformation and disinformation, government specialists, the global specialists, that the, one of the largest social media platforms in the world, Twitter, X, was telling you to F you and bringing back Alex Jones. And because of that, I believe, to bring this back around, that the corporate media at the behest of the ruling establishment and government is now going after Tesla. I've never seen so much bad publicity in Tesla. I had a friend who's, I've invested heavily in Tesla stock. I'm like, well, you might want to think twice about that because Tesla, I believe, is a paper tiger. No matter how well it's made and how beautiful the cars are and how powerful, et cetera, it's like they're a Super Bowl team who shows up at a Super Bowl and they're claiming we're the greatest of all time and no one can beat us. And you're banning their competition from showing up. So I don't think Tesla's really been tested. It's a high-end product. And you know, electric vehicles are what, six, seven percent of the US market. They're going nowhere. That's why they have to ban the competition of gas-powered cars. And now the media is turning full scale, full stop against Elon Musk. And that's why I think we're seeing it, in addition to the fact that these EVs are not made for Chicago winters, et cetera. Okay. I wanted to start out, we alluded to this yesterday, I have the clip today, Al Gore, we'll start out slow. This is Al Gore on extreme weather. He's in Davos for the World Economic Forum. He's doing an interview. This is him, this is one of the first claim, and then I'm gonna come back and talk about it. This is clip one, Al Gore in Davos making scientific claims. Mother Nature has other uh, intentions. Unfortunately, the climate-related extreme weather events are underway right now, today, every day, every day. Uh, and we're continuing to add uh, a huge additional amount of heat-trapping pollution to the sky every single day. Okay. I mean, I'm just going to say it quick. Absolutely false. First of all, extreme weather happens every day. It's happened every day in the history of the earth. It will happen every day in the future history of the earth. It's happening every day now. It's always happened, always will happen. But even the United Nations National Climate Assessment on hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, wildfires, droughts, every single freaking metric, it's either down or uh, no trend on all of these major 
out, uh, extreme weather measures. And for Al Gore to sit there and claim it's worse, it's anecdotal claptrap. And then he calls carbon dioxide emissions pollution, another lie. Humans inhale oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide. Why, if you believe Al Gore, then human breath is a pollutant. Oh, I guess the peer-reviewed science backs up Gore. We did a whole thing on the study showing that human breath contains methane and nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide, and it actually, carbon, yeah, carbon dioxide, and it actually warms the earth. This is according to the journal PLOS, a peer-reviewed study, and they actually claim that Africans warm the earth with their breath more than Asians and that women warm the earth more with their breath. So, so Gore might be right. There might be some wacky scientific re redefinition going on there, but certainly CO2 and human breath is not a pollutant in the traditional sense of pollution. I guess you can always read, just like a vaccine denier was redefined by Marion Webster, used to be people who oppose vaccines. Now a vaccine denier is those who oppose vaccine mandates. And yes, that's the sad truth. Okay, that's clip one from Gore. The next uh, is Gore commenting on Kerry leaving his climate envoy post. This is Al Gore lamenting that we're going to lose such stellar leadership as John Kerry. Clip three. What does John Kerry stepping down mean for efforts on climate change? Well, he'll be hard to replace because he brought um, the stature to to have the kinds of meetings that a climate envoy needs to needs to have. And of course, he shouldn't be judged just by the final result in uh, Dubai. He's been there for several yeah. cops and. You know, in the Summer Olympics, when they judge the diving competition, the degree of difficulty has a, a great deal to do with the final score. And he undertook a tremendously difficult task and really did a terrific job, in my opinion. I mean, I don't understand what was difficult. John Kerry would show up at a U.N. summit and get a bunch of people to agree to meaningless claptrap uh, and then they would declare success. John Kerry would fly in a private jet to UN summits to pick up environmental awards in Iceland. He meets with China, doesn't mention any human rights abuses, doesn't mention any environmental standard issue with China, and just wants them to agree to these paper targets many years, in some cases, decades into the future. That's John Kerry's bullshit job. Let's fly here and do the, oh, I'm gonna, I'm important. Do you know who I am? And he doesn't own a private jet. His family doesn't own a private jet. Uh, but his wife does, did, uh, and you know that whole thing. So that's why he won Climate Hypocrite of the Year. It just utter nonsense. Uh, on one point on John Kerry, I just got a report from Politico. End of an era. Who comes after John Kerry? Who's going to be the United States climate envoy? For those of you who actually give a beep, potential successors include some Kerry deputy named Sue Bienaz. Also, the Washington governor, Jay Ensley, who is like the biggest claptrap unscientific rube you've ever heard of who just wants to make the whole world focus on climate and we're going to stop the climate from changing the guy should have a witch uh you know have a witch's brew and a witch hat on when he talks because he's practicing medieval witchcraft and of course longtime political operative john podesta is also a leading candidate to replace john Kerry. by the way john Kerry left to go help biden's re-election because that's where his talents are more suited he's going to help joe biden get re-elected so we can continue to fight climate change is that just, we're going to fight the climate are we going to fight the earth's rotation next are we going to fight the clouds next why don't we fight uh, ocean cycles i mean this is just medieval medieval no john podesta if he's replaced John Podesta's in the climate world's claim to fame is claiming, and, and this was like 2012, that Obama's cap and trade bill was necessary 
the Obama administration's climate bills were necessary because the storms were getting worse. So we needed to carb tax carbon, raise energy prices on Americans, and then hurricanes and tornadoes would lessen. If you were a tornado in hurricane and tornado alley, say in Oklahoma, and you saw, you know, oh my gosh, they're passing a, a climate bill, Obama, we're gonna, I'm not gonna form, or a hurricane would veer off the coast of Florida if they knew that we were serious about fighting climate. That's John Podesta actually claiming that a climate bill in the United States Congress, if it passed, could prevent severe weather. It's just just nuts. I just can't. We shouldn't even give these people <laughs> modicum of respect. Okay. Now for the meat and potatoes. Al Gore. This is clip two. We have to get to true net zero and stop adding or the temperature will go up and the temperature will stop going up immediately. Al Gore claiming we can stop global warming cold if we just meet the political goal of net zero. Clip two. The good news is that once we get to true net zero and stop adding, the temperatures will stop going up almost immediately with a lag of as little as three years. And if we stay at true net zero, half of the human caused greenhouse gas pollution will fall out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years. But if, getting, there is, it, right. getting there is very right. tough. It's a, it's a big if. So there you have it. Now, just a refresher. The idea of net zero is based on a 1.5 degree, 2 degree temperature rise limit. We know for a fact from the United Nations released climate gate emails that came out in uh, December of 2009 and into 2010, that the top UN scientist, uh, Phil Jones, admitted in these private emails that the net zero the goals were literally plucked from thin air, that there's no science to support it, that these were just political goals to give politicians something to sort of focus on, but they had no idea. Like if we do the following and reach this net zero, then we're it's all nonsense. And for Gordon now claim that within three years, we're going to see the temperature. This is a formula for if the temperature doesn't go down or not fast enough, they're going to say, well, we didn't do enough. Our net zero goals weren't strict enough. If they do happen, they'll say, oh, look, they can take credit and say, see, we told you so. They're going to take credit. It's like saying, uh, you know, the, I'm going to make the sunset at 530 if you're talking to people who don't know that sunsets or, you know, it, it's just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. But let's give you the real scientific. I had a physicist, Dennis Rancourt, from the University of Ottawa, on my programs on peer-reviewed research on, on climate. This is clip five. This is his reaction to Al Gore's claim that if we reach net zero, we can stop temperatures from going up almost immediately. Dennis Rancourt. Okay, so that, that statement is completely nonsensical. It's, it's so crazy on so many levels. Okay, for, first of all, there's no demonstration that human activity can affect the, the level of the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, okay? There, there, the, the mobile carbon is in various huge pools on the planet. One of the biggest ones is dissolved carbon in the ocean, which is controlled by temperature, uh, the dissolution of CO2. So there are these huge pools, much bigger than, than this, the, the carbon that's in the atmosphere that, that are exchangeable, that have exchangeable with the atmosphere. And there's all kinds of geological uh, processes that control those exchanges. And so there's no reason to believe that because we're burning fossil fuel, that's why the CO2 is increasing, okay? And, and there's likewise no reason to believe that if we stop burning fossil fuel, that it would stop increasing and so on. So that's one thing is that th that is a very tenuous and simplistic thing to believe that uh, the CO2 that you produce by burning directly goes into the atmosphere. Um, the planet doesn't work that way. 
first thing. Second thing, the warming will stop if we do this. Well, what warming are we talking about? If you actually look at surface temperature and you do means, annual means, because of the, you know, there's seasonal variations in temperature, and you do means across the surface of the planet the best way you can uh, using ge ge geographer's techniques, then that mean temperature, which is fundamentally obtained by measurements locally at weather stations and so on, or sometimes by satellites, the data that suggests that the mean temperature has been increasing slightly is completely biased. It's skewed. It's unreliable. It's it's full of problems. Every time uh, statisticians look at what the government are proposing for this data and how they have manipulated the data in order to produce a very small increase, uh, what you find is that it's unreliable and untrue. Well, that's a great scientific explanation from physicist Dr. Dennis Rancourt. Uh, as if we needed a scientific explanation. I mean, we, we have to know something's instinctively wrong. When Al Gore says, if we meet the goals of the United Nations net zero, the temperature will be affected almost immediately. <clears throat> I mean, I don't even know. This is like those old uh, con men selling their wares in the back of trucks in 1900. You know, I don't even know if they made such bold claims that could be verified. So it's pretty scary stuff that Gore is re reduced to this. This is kind of reminds me of the COVID narrative where wear your mask, stay at home, don't be a grandma killer. If we get the vaccine, if we keep the schools closed, then the lockdowns can end. We need more restrictions in order to ease the restrictions. That's the path forward. That's the way out of this. No. How about the way out is you stop the public health authoritarianism and pseudoscience, give us our freedom and let us live our lives and live with the virus. You moron. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm in a cursing mood today. Um, okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, I got some more clips to show you, but we have a guest there. We have now Tim Murtaugh is about to join us, former communication director for Trump's 2020 campaign and the author of the book, Swing Hard, In Case You Miss It, My Escape from Addiction and Shot at Redemption on the Trump campaign. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT, and I'm on fire today. I'm Unleashed. We'll be right back after these messages. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done, and in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future with nutritious food to eat. A chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams. 
by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT with Mark Morano. All right, we're joined now by Tim Murtaugh, the former communications director for Trump's 2020 campaign and author of the book, Swing Hard In Case You Miss It, My Escape From the Addiction and Shot at Redemption on the Trump Campaign. Welcome to the program, Tim. Thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, I appreciate it. Always glad to talk about my book, Swing Hard In Case You Hit It, uh, available on uh, Amazon.com. Pre-orders now, and it comes out on April 2nd. So thank you very much. All right. Well, tell us your story. Now, you became the Trump campaign communication director, but it says in the description, you woke up in J Fairfax County Jail, which, by the way, is I grew up in Fairfax County. I'm a McLean resident, mm -hmm. went to Langley High School and Spring Hill School. I was a, uh, I'm a, a life, I was a lifelong Fairfax County resident until I moved. Um, but in 2015, you woke up in jail. I guess you were suffering the effects of alcoholism. How did you mm -hmm. go from that moment to then Leo you know, being in charge of the Trump communication team in 2020. Tell us your journey. Well, I mean, everybody gets to sobriety if they do get to sobriety in their own way. And so the reason why I wrote this book is that uh, I went, I was a pretty bad alcoholic for decades. And I went to rehab a number of different times, five times, in fact. And every time I was in rehab, I found myself spending a lot of time in the bookstore. And I was just devouring all the titles that had people telling their own personal stories, their own histories. How, what difficulties they encountered and how they eventually did make it through and attain sobriety. And those those were the kinds of stories that I gravitated to. And that's what really helped me. And uh, I decided that I wanted to write a book like that because, you know, my story is my own. But I think that if you're reading about somebody else's journeys, you can find some things that you can relate to. And, and as you say, one day, it was May 16th, 2015, I woke up in jail at the Fairfax County Adult Correctional Center. And at that time, I was on probation for my second of two DUIs. And if I got in any more legal trouble that was related to alcohol, I was going to serve the remainder of a sentence that I'd, I'd already served 10 days when I had 80 days suspended. And if I didn't get myself straightened out right then, I was going to go to jail for almost three months and I was going to lose my my job and, and forget about actually just losing a job. I was going to lose my career. Uh, I was probably going to lose my new wife and my family, my parents and my brother and all my friends. They were about fed up with me. I had to turn things around right then. And it, all I needed was the threat of losing everything. It was complete personal ruin. Not everyone needs to get pushed to that point. Some people need to get pushed past that point. But for me, uh, that's what it was. And, and I uh, said about I went to AA meetings an awful lot. Uh, I got a sponsor. I did a lot of work on my own. And I just decided that uh, there was too much at risk, that I just couldn't drink anymore. And, and I was able to, to walk away. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. Uh, that's the primary reason anyway. And, and I hope that uh, people can get something out of it. If, it. if it helps one person not pick up a drink for, say, 10 minutes, then uh, it was worth writing. Well, I mean, we've all uh, had people have been affected by addiction. I lost my brother to addiction. Uh, and mm -hmm. I was reading Matthew Perry's story as well. I mean, he was like 12 or 13, had his first sip of alcohol, and he was like, whoa, this is where I need to be. And his whole life was transformed at that moment. Uh, so it, let me ask, ask you, maybe off topic, but is addiction a disease in your mind? Is, it, is there a certain chemical 
the makeup of some humans are more prone or is it psychological a combination? How do you view that whole thing? Why are some people so susceptible? Another friend who worked at a college and there's a certain percentage of kids can go through this binge drinking phase and then leave college and be fine and others get zapped with alcoholism. How do you explain that kind of intricacies of addiction and who it targets and who gets away with, from it without the, without having to go through long periods of recovery? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm afraid I can't really describe why anybody gets trapped in it other yeah. than the fact that I know that I did and, and I, yeah, I couldn't stop drinking. I drank too much and I couldn't stop doing it for the longest time for decades. I know that the American Medical Association classifies it as a disease. And so I, I, I take their word for it. And to me, it really did truly feel like something that was insurmountable. It is physically addicting. There's no question of that. I mean, I went through terrible, yeah. terrible withdrawals uh, with the times that I stopped drinking for a period of time. And uh, at the course, at the beginning of when I stopped drinking for good back in 2015, I went through withdrawal right away. And I'm led to believe by the doctors that I encountered in, in the rehab facilities that I went to that withdrawal from alcohol deprivation, once you're addicted to it, uh, is far deadlier. And, and many people actually do die from it than uh, the addiction, than the withdrawal symptoms from, say, cocaine or heroin or something else. Alcohol withdrawals is actually far more dangerous to the human body than other kinds of addiction withdrawals. And that's what they taught us anyway, at the, at the rehabs that I went to. But again, I'm not a doctor. All I know is my own experience. And in my experience, it was it was really difficult. And I think that there is safety in numbers. And if, if people can share their stories and maybe read some of what I went through, uh, then uh, maybe it will help them. And that's that's what I wrote about in the book. And again, it's called Swing Hard in Case You Hit It. It's by Bombardier Books, which is an imprint of Post Hill Press. And it's available on Amazon.com right now for pre-order. It comes out on April 2nd. That's only about half the book, though. The other half of the book is yeah. uh, a lot of stories from my life in politics, most of which, most of those stories came from the 2020 Trump campaign. And and uh, that was a wild ride for a bunch of different reasons. I'll tell you, I'll tell right, you well, that. Walk us through. So 2015, you end up in jail. You end up quitting alcohol. You rebuild your life. And then how do you go from there to the Trump campaign and what what uh, you know, give us a little bit of your background and then give us how you got on the Trump and how that went in 2020? Well, I mean, I guess it's a story of, uh, you know, having been around long enough and having gotten to know and worked with sort of the right people in the right circumstances who ended up being in the right position to talk to again down the road. And at that time, while I was still drinking and right at the point where I quit, I was working on Capitol Hill. I was a communications director for a congressman from Pennsylvania, a guy named Lou Barletta, who is really just a great guy and a good man. And he knew that I had problems and uh, he hadn't given up on me. And so I was ab about halfway through my four years of working for him when when I got sober. And so I, the first two years, I was completely a mess working for him. And uh, he'd had experience in his own family with with alcoholic individuals. And so he, he saw that in me and I guess saw that I ha had the possibility of being redeemed in, in some way. And so he stuck with me and didn't fire me, although I, I believe that he should have. And so when I quit drinking in 2015, I stayed in his office for a while. And he was he was one of the very first members of the House of Representatives to endorse candidate Trump. And I think that I think oh, that endorsement cool. happened in, in 2015. If not, it was very early 2016. And he was one of the first on board with Trump. And then after Trump got elected, um, I was sitting at home and, and hearing the news. It was the day before Inauguration Day. And the word came out that a guy named Sonny Perdue, who was the two-term governor, former two-term governor of Georgia, 
had been selected by candidate or president-elect Trump as to be the Secretary of Agriculture. And I didn't know Sonny Perdue, but I knew a whole bunch of people who had worked for them for him while he was governor in Georgia. And I texted one of them, a guy by the name of Nick Ayers, who is, went on to become the chief of staff for the vice president and was offered the job of uh, president, uh, chief of staff to, at the White House. And I said, sure, I would I would love to work for Sonny Perdue. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm communications director for the Secretary of Agriculture. And okay. I did two years two years there. And I uh, knew a bunch of people who were working on the campaign, the president's reelection campaign, because I had worked with them in previous campaigns. And uh, we got to into a conversation and I met with them and I eventually went over and met with Brad Parscale, who was the campaign manager at the time. And I got hired on and I, I spent two full years, actually 24 months as communications director on the Trump campaign. And it was really the greatest personal professional experience I've ever yeah. had. And, and I will always be grateful for President Trump for uh, giving me a chance. And I think he likes a good comeback story. He was aware of my history. Uh, and uh, and I think he likes a redemption story. And I'm very grateful for that. Wow. So in the 2020 campaign, how confident were, did you think Trump was going to win? Did you think it was going to be close? Uh, how did you feel going into that? I mean, obviously, I'd say the COVID lockdowns really just put a nuclear bomb, not only in the economy, but in the whole entire 2020 race. So how, how did you, how, how confident were you going into the election, uh, you know, the final weeks there? Did you think Trump was going to win or were you worried or how did you see it? Well, you know, I was there for two whole years, and that includes some time post-election day, of course, as we all know, the, that election yes. never didn't end on time, and some exactly. it, it's still going on in some respects. <laughs> but, um, you know, I I felt really, really good. I knew I had no designs on any ideas that it was going to be a cakewalk or be simple, but I thought that the economy was so strong, and there were so many great achievements in the Trump administration, both domestically and uh, in foreign policy. The world was at peace. Uh, the economy was... Was booming. Uh, things were going well. Uh, Americans were proud of being Americans again. The standing on the world stage had increased. They just think all the direction, all the things pointed in the right direction for a re-election for the president. And I think really had COVID not happened, and truthfully, yeah. I think the media, the media at large was looking for a something to hold over Trump's head and, and bludgeon him into submission uh, with. And I think that a global pandemic, which in their minds, they could blame on one human on the face of the planet. <laughs> Remember, this is what the yes. American media did. It was a global pandemic. Every nation on Earth was affected by this, by a disease that came from China. So naturally, it is one American's fault. That the entire world was engulfed in this. It's all yeah. Donald Trump's fault. That's what that's what the media decided. And I believe, I firmly believe, and no one could ever convince me otherwise, that if COVID had not happened, Donald Trump would be president right now, right? This as I'm talking to you right now. So oh. COVID COVID wrecked everything uh, for the world, really, and it complicated the campaign. Wow. Um, how I mean. <laughs> This it was just you were in one of the most uniquest positions in history. You were literally the the communication director for a presidential candidate that literally was probably the most hated by the political establishment in U.S. history. I'm trying to think of anyone. I mean, Jimmy Carter wasn't that hated. The media would have supported him because he was a Democrat. I, I'd have to go back, but I mean, certainly modern history, there was no president more vilified, no president more attacked, no president that they would just do anything dirty, any kind of smear. They would elevate any kind of charge, the whole steel dossier, the Russia collusion, anything they could. How did you deal with that? I mean, you what you did and what you dealt with 
were unprecedented. And at least I'm going to keep saying modern because I don't want to go back to the 19th century or something, but, but modern presidential politics. How did you know at the time that you were working for in a unique moment in history that you know, probably won't be well, we, we repeated, I guess, next this year, actually. But aside from that, you know, if you take Trump out of it, uh, did you know how unique it was that when you were actually in the position? Yeah, I think I did. Um, I remember I, I started taking to uh, I took to calling it early on the most watched political campaign in world history. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I mean, the, you know, the United States political elections, presidential elections uh, are always the subject of a lot of global attention. And when it was Donald Trump, the president of the United States running for re-election, um, I think it was the most watched campaign in history, topping, of course, the one had that, that had preceded it when he got elected in the first place. Now, right. I think 2020 will likely be the most watched in world history, or 2024, that is, will likely yes. be the most watched in world history all over again. But for right now, uh, I was the comms director on on what I think is the reigning champ as far as, the, you know, the the, uh, the biggest uh, spectacle, I guess you would say, of a, of a wow. presidential election. And yeah, I think there's no question that he's the, he's the most vilified by, you know, about roughly half the country and certainly by the media. I write a column every two weeks for the Washington Times where I do a lot of criticisms of the American national news media. And, uh, you know, I think and a lot of that has to do with their continuing ongoing animosity towards President Trump. But, you know, also animosity about anything that is uh, right of center, really. Um, it was probably a surreal experience and, and um, certain moments of it were are extremely hard to describe. And uh, I tried to do the best I could for a lot of them. That's uh, in half of the, about half of the book here. And the way I wrote the book is uh, half of it's two different timelines, really, because I view myself as having lived two separate lives. Basically, there's the drinking life and then the non-drinking life. And so in order to tell the story, I, I bounced back and forth. I alternated chapters in between drunk me and sober me and told the story <laughs> that way. So every, every yeah. other chapter, there's a story about me working in politics, not drinking, sober. And most of those have to do with the Trump campaign. And, and I hope the reader can get a flavor of, of what it's like, because, I mean... I, sometimes I look back and I think, man, I can't believe I lived through that stuff. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Wow. All right. Well, we only have about a minute and a half left. Let's talk 2024. Given your perspective, where do you see this campaign? I assume you believe the Republican nomination battles over. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis don't have a chance. Uh, do you think Biden will be the nominee? And how do you see 2024 playing out? How is it going to be different than 2020? Are you worried about voter integrity? And are you worried about the legal challenges that Donald Trump's facing? Could he end up either in jail or disqualified? Well, I, I don't know how they're going to disqualify him, but I I, uh, I don't I hope that the U.S. Supreme Court steps in and stops all these 14th Amendment challenges because they're frankly, they're, they're ridiculous. They're hilarious. The yeah. is, <laughs> is quite clear, quite clear about who has the authority to uh, enforce the provisions of that amendment. And let me tell you, it is certainly not the Colorado State Supreme Court. <laughs> that, that, that's not yeah. in the Constitution, I can tell you that. Um, I think, I do think that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. Uh, I think that if he wants it, it's his. He's the incumbent president and uh, the the party. I mean, you already see it. They've canceled. There's no, there's a there's a primary in New Hampshire. Most people don't know this. There is a Democratic primary in New Hampshire this coming week the, on Tuesday at the same time the Republicans are having theirs. Now, it's not sanctioned. 
and it doesn't even matter. It's basically just a beauty contest. But um, the the fact that it is not sanctioned and has no impact will tell you that if Joe Biden wants the nomination, then it's his again. Right. And I th I think that this contest, this nominating contest on the Republican side, has been over for quite some time. Iowa, all Iowa did was just prove it again. I think we'll see it again in New Hampshire, and then South Carolina will be no contest. In Nevada, there was no contest, and I, I think Trump is the nominee. Odds are it's going to be a rematch, Trump and Biden. And I think it will be, if the election were today, at this moment, I think Trump would win. Just because yes. in 20, if you think about this way, in 2016 and 2020, and I know for sure in 2020, because I was there, there was never, not one time, was there ever a national poll that showed Donald Trump beating Joe Biden. Not one. Yes. And this time around, there's a bunch, bunch of polls. And in Trump key swing states, too. Which, yes. Yeah. So I, it'll come down to a handful of states, just like it did in 16 and 20. It'll be about three states, and it'll be you know, a matter of tens of thousands of votes spread across those three states and those three swing states. And, you know, take your pick. It could be Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, states like that, Nevada, Arizona. Uh, a handful of those states separated by just a you know tens of thousands of votes spread across that's who's going to decide who the next president is it'll be just as tight as 2016 just as tight as 2020 and uh you know we'll see if it were today your, i think trump wins it's a long way to go uh, what are you worried about the vote last question is are you worried about voter integrity uh my concern was always about the covid provisions of the changes with all the mail-in ballots. It just seems like there's no way, verification, enough verification. This was opposed by the Jimmy Carter, um, Jim Baker commission 20 years ago. We've always known that they lack integrity. Are you worried about that being a deciding factor, particularly in those swing states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Michigan? Wisconsin. I do worry about it because I think people who say that, oh, there's no possibility for fraud in mechanisms like that are are doing that's that's a political answer. That's not a serious answer. Yeah. If you look at if you look at the case of Pennsylvania from 2020, well over a million people voted by mail in Pennsylvania who had never voted by mail uh, ever in in, in yeah. their lives. And you you just can't tell me that every single one of those ballots was pristine and perfect and actually cast by the person whose name was on the ballot you just i, I yeah. now what level of, of malfeasance there is i don't know you'd have to go out and conduct 1.4 million individual interviews to determine that and that's that's just not possible but uh, when when states have legalized ballot harvesting and instill in, in states where it's not legal where you can just walk into say a senior citizen's home and walk out with 250 ballots and go dump them in a mailbox somewhere i mean that's not secure at all that doesn't even approach security. So yeah. how anyone could look at this and say, oh, there's no problem here. Well, that's just partisanship. They, they want to say that there's no partisan. A lot of people react. If Donald Trump says something is, is A, yes. then they will automatically say B. And I think exactly. if anyone with any common sense looks at that, they will know that a lot of these functions, a lot of these mechanisms, they really are open for fraud. How much there was and how much there will be, I, I don't know. But certainly the possibility exists. And anyone who denies it, I, I just I don't think they're telling the truth. All right. Well, thank you. This is Tim Murta, former communication director for Trump's 2020 campaign, author of Swing Hard, in case you miss it, my escape from addiction and shot at redemption on the Trump campaign. Thank you for joining the program today, Tim. You bet, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. All right. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. When we come back, we're going to show you some video of Tesla's dead in the Chicago cold. And we have a clip of Trump, President, former President Trump, handling climate protesters. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, 
you have Parkinson's. The truth is, Parkinson's disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. Worldwide, over 10 million people are living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement. And with so many places to search for information, it can be difficult to know where to begin. The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care, give you tips for living a better life, share the latest research, help you find local support, and there's a free helpline you can call. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org or call 1-800-4PD-INFO. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives together. As a combat wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was gonna make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. LaToya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Mark Morano is unleashed, and he's taking on the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. Well, that was a great interview with Tim Murtaugh um, and his predictions. I think he's right. It's very hard to call this. I do think he's right that if the election were held today, President Trump would win. I'm kind of still partial to him picking Vivek Ramaswamy as his VP. I know Christy Nome has mentioned uh, the last thing he could ever consider would be, of course, Nikki Haley. I love the fact that uh, Rand Paul came out recently with the Never Nikki website. Uh, because she is literally just George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, John McCain, Bob Dole, all rolled into one. Uh, and we can never let the Republican Party go back to those individuals. And as I've said in this show and even yesterday, referencing it, after Ronald Reagan, there's Donald Trump. And I'm sorry, you can have every other president. As I mentioned, Bill Clinton's second term was the only time uh, that was a, a good time um, in terms of for the country because you had total gridlock in Washington with the Republican Congress. Okay. I mentioned earlier about the media going after Tesla. This is actually what they're talking about. These Teslas are dying in the cold in Chicago. So let's play clip four. This is a local Chicago, I think it's a Fox affiliate. Uh, this is particular video showing you what people are going through who bought electric cars thinking they were going to be just the end all be all. Clip four. Okay, Emily, thank you. That cold is also causing some big-time headaches for Chicago-area owners of electric vehicles. Yes, I never thought we'd say this, yeah. but it's true. As Dane Placco reports, the low temperatures have caused some headaches for owners looking to charge their cars. Electric cars may be the way of the future, but it's clear there are some problems when it comes to charging them in Chicago's deep freeze. 
Oh, we got a bunch of dead robots out here. Dead robots. <laughs> dead Teslas packed the parking lot at this Tesla supercharging station in Oak Brook, a scene mirrored at other supercharging stations around the Chicago area. Man, this is crazy. It's, it's, it's a disaster. Seriously. With temperatures falling into the negative double digits, these charging ports have stopped charging, leaving many Tesla owners stranded here in long lines since Sunday. Nothing, no juice, it's still on zero percent, and this is like three hours this morning being out here, after being out here eight hours yesterday. Has it been charging? No, not at all. It just isn't working? At all. It's just frozen, and so I'm now getting it towed to the um, Tesla service center because that's my only option at this point. And there you have it. And this is, the, you know, this is actually, I consider that news without an agenda. This is a, just a major problem with electric cars in general. If they have a purported range of 270, 300 miles, when it gets that cold, the range is going to drop to 200. If you use the heater, if you use other accessories in the car, you're going to drop into the ones, 150, 180. And the other thing that's funny about this is you have to precondition the battery before you charge it if it's too cold. In other words, you got to get the battery up and running, get it warmed up to a certain level, get everything, the juices flowing, so to speak, to precondition before you can just plug your charger in. Uh, and it's incredible that this is being mandated. Again, if you allow this to happen, the World Bank, corporate banks, the EU, the UN, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the entire global community have it in for gas-powered cars. They are forcing EVs on people. They know that they're not going to be able to replace cars. They're at 6 or 7% of sales in the U.S. right now. And they're just simply doing vehicle rationing to limit our freedom of movement, force you into mass transit. And you have the World Bank president, Nicholas Stern, saying, we have to look at financing. We shouldn't even be financing these cars, sending a signal to automakers that at the global banking level, funding is going to be cut. You have a corporate bank in Australia who said they won't give out car loans for anyone trying to buy a gas-powered car. That's pretty serious. You have cities in Colorado, California, banning the creation of new gas stations. So you have gas station bans. So even if you have a gas-powered car, they want to create shortages in gas stations. Uh, this is insane. And this is the result. And this is, again, this is a this is a feature, not a bug, that people are stranded in the cold weather because they really should be going nowhere. You'll go nowhere and they should be happy. And I think that's ultimately what the what the goal here is because it's a very fine line between forcing you into an impractical expensive car with high maintenance costs and by the way we already mentioned i think it was avis rental car getting rid of like a third of their evs just like that and two reasons cited lack of consumer demand and high maintenance costs those are freaking killers for any anything that you're trying to sell in the automotive uh industry huge 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 problem uh, but the real goal, and, and Boris Johnson, the UK Premier's Transportation Secretary, said it eloquently, owning a car is outdated 20th century thinking. You had Andrew Yang, the Democrat who ran for president, saying we don't need car ownership. People should be able to call up a rental car, like a little app, and rent a car for a few hours. Canadian Magazine said we need to get rid of pickup ownership, pickup truck ownership. You should only be able to go rent one. And then you have, uh, I think it was the Business Insider saying EV, electric cars aren't the answer. We need to get rid of vehicles completely. They want a mass collective controllable. And you say, well, why do they want to control? 
you haven't got the vaccine, you're not wearing a mask, and this, you know, we have disease X coming down the pike uh, from the World Health Organization, you're not going to be able to move. You're going to be stuck at home. You'll go nowhere. You're going to have a 15-minute city. In order to leave that little range, you're going to have to be fully compliant with whatever the hell the government says you do. And of course, they'll have on top of that, you have ESG, which is distorting all the banking and investment and finance for industry and business. But you also have central bank digital currency at the layer. So just watch that clip when you see those people stranded. This is what the government, it's one thing if it was just an option and people, oh, I want an electric car, no, it's not that practical, but, but this is being forced on us. The competition for electric cars is being banned. And it's just the old analogy. You have a sports team about to play a championship game and they say, we're the greatest. We don't need to play the other team because we're saving the planet. The other team is harmful to the planet. We're not even gonna let them play. They're not allowed on the field. We're getting the trophy. We get the Lombardi trophy in football. So insane. Okay. We've talked many times about these climate protesters and it's just, these are not, let me, let me clarify. They are deluded, ideological, brainwashed young people generally when you see them blocking traffic, throwing paint, defacing art, et cetera. But they're actually spokespeople and doing the exact work financed directly, not like, oh, we have to go through dark money. They're being financed by the Getty family, by the Rockefellers. They're being financed by Hollywood directors like McKay who did How... Uh, How High is Up, I believe, is the movie, is big animated success. Hollywood millionaires, billionaires, family foundations are directly funding the Just Stop Oil, the Extinction Rebellions. And whenever you see these crazy kids blocking the traffic and throwing stuff, interrupting speeches, interrupting halftime at at a sports event, this is exactly what the establishment wants. This is the message. And we've even had, uh, you know, many climate activist scientists say, this is not a good look. Why are we doing this? But they still keep doing it. And they just recently went after Ron DeSantis. They recently went after Vivek Ramaswamy. um, And they even go after Biden administration officials. It's just, but the level of their discourse is moronic, sophomoric, um, and just absolutely, it's, it's laughable, everything they say. But anyway, so this is clip six. This is former President Trump to a climate disruptor. And this is the way he handles it by saying, go home to your mommy. Go ahead, clip six. And I think that's that's a very good way to handle these protesters is you can't engage them on any level. You need to turn them into a form of entertainment at your rally, at your event. And I think that's what Donald Trump did brilliantly. 
Uh, and we, we covered this, it was yesterday's show, where I showed you the three ways the police should respond. Again, I have to be careful because uh, I don't want to just say, crush them, stop them, or, you know, brutalize them, get them out of there. I want to be able to have the right to legal protest. And I think particularly about what happened to the Canadian truckers, how they were shut down, declared domestic terrorists. I think about all the European protests, particularly against the vaccine and mask mandates and lockdowns. I think about Australia, the heavy hand of the police. So as much as we think these are just annoying, deluded, uh, brainwashed individuals, and they are, uh, we still need to respect their right to protest because we're going to be in the same spot as this government um, comes up with their new authoritarian responses. And I have updates on that. Preparing for disease X. This is from fresh off the presses at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Okay, here we go. This is actually uh, late last night. This just came in. World Economic Forum. Preparing for disease X with fresh warnings from the World Health Organization, an unknown disease X has appeared and could result in 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus pandemic. Now, first of all, 20 times, the coronavirus pandemic was about the, the mortality rate of the flu, give or take. And so 20 times would be pretty bad, uh, but notice the word could. Might, may, this is a, I dealt with this in climate all the time. This could happen. This might happen. This might, may. And now, by the way, the latest climate study is on Greenland is using artificial intelligence to simulate uh, ice projections and loss now. They're using AI taking over for real humans in the process. And who knows, maybe AI will do a better job. But of course, AI is created by humans to serve humans and human interests. So before it gets a life of its own and takes over the planet. But anyway, so according to the World Economic Forum, disease X could result in 20 times more fatalities than the coronavirus pandemic. What novel efforts are needed to prepare healthcare systems for multiple challenges ahead? Uh, and that will be addressed at this week's Davos ongoing at this moment. And then it says, this session is linked with the Partnership for Health System Sustainability and Resilience and Collaborative Surveillance Initiative of the World Economic Forum. Hmm. Let's, let's unpack that just for a moment. They're trying to start all over again. Inject you fear. 20 times the death rate. Spanish flu death tolls. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it sounds like... Uh, Neil Ferguson coming out to justify the original lockdowns and copy China, the World Health Organization. But what's interesting about this is there's a financial and self-interest motive here, and they're pretty nakedly open about it. This session on disease X, this is quoting the World Economic Forum in Davos from a press release late last night. This session is linked to the Partnership for Health System Sustainability and resilience and the collaborative surveillance initiative. Now, the surveillance initiative, hmm, the World Economic Forum is hyping up a fear. And guess what? The only way to deal with it, first of all, we need to trust the science, trademark. We need to turn ourselves over to the expert views and expert opinions and the ruling class solutions under any said disease X virus. And this is going to benefit them, their cronies. These are startups, these are nonprofits. The Collaborative Surveillance Initiative, and only way you can beat this kind of a virus is we have to know who has it, where they're traveling. We need regular vaccine monitoring. We need little uh, 
uh, you know, they they proposed implants and tattoos, uh, a um, scan that can tell whether you have uh, the virus. In Australia, you'd have to be monitored. And if you went to a grocery store where someone later got tested for uh, COVID-19, you would then have the option of, of uh, quarantining at home. Or if you refused, you'd be taken forcibly to the local quarantine center. And that's what the World Health Organization is picking, is collaborative surveillance initiative to monitor all this, to make the authoritarianism and the tyranny that much more oppressive and effective from their point of view. Oh, well. All right, this has been Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time.